0: Brothers and sisters in Christ, the last time we looked at the new covenant in the prophecy of Isaiah, this time we're going to look at it in the prophecy of Jeremiah. When we looked at the prophecy of Isaiah, we saw that covenant, the new covenant, in connection especially with the servant of the Lord. We saw in two passages that he was appointed by God as the covenant of the Gentiles, and then we looked at one other passage in Isaiah 54, where the prophet speaks of, the, um, of God begetting children by his wife, his people, uh, among the Gentiles. Now when we come to Jeremiah, there are also three passages we want to look at, but those passages approach this subject from a somewhat different point of view. The first passage we want to look at is Isaiah eleven verses one to ten. The second Isaiah or Jeremiah thirty one verses thirty one to thirty three, and the third Jeremiah thirty two verses forty and following. When we look at Jeremiah eleven verses one to ten, we see that this passage is not really about the new covenant with his people. It is instead about the Lord's covenant with Israel at Sinai. And I bring this passage up not because I want to spend a lot of time on it. It doesn't have a great deal to do with the whole idea of the new covenant, but I bring it up because it's the background against which we will understand the references later in the prophecy to the new covenant. Now, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 7 are the reminder by God through the prophet of his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And in that uh, word that God says to his people through the prophet, he really says to them, First of all, that covenant which I made with Israel at Mount Sinai is still in force today. We might even speak here in Jeremiah 11 of God reiterating that covenant. I don't think I would want to speak of a renewal of that covenant, but God reiterating that covenant to his people in order to remind them of what he had done for them at Mount Sinai. So we see these words of God. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God. So God reminds them of that covenant which he had made with them at Mount Sinai, and especially of the law of that covenant, when he had told them, Obey my voice and do according to my commandments. But, of course, Israel had not obeyed God and had not kept the covenant. And that's the subject that we find in verses 8 and following. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. So God says, you haven't followed this covenant, or your fathers did not follow this covenant. And verses 9 and 10, he says, neither have you. And the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquity of their forefathers, who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. So their fathers broke the covenant. Now Jeremiah says to the current generation at the command of God, you also have broken the covenant. You have returned to the transgressions of your fathers. And therefore, verses 11 and following, the curses of that covenant will come on you also. So he says, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So this is the background then against which God begins to speak in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant. And he says here in Jeremiah 11, You have broken that old covenant, that covenant I made with you at Sinai. You have broken it by disobeying my commandments and by worshipping other gods. It's that background of the breaking of the Sinaitic covenant against which we have to look now at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following. If we begin at the beginning of that passage, we find this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, And with the house of Judah. I think this is the only place in the Old Testament scriptures that we find that phrase, new covenant. We find it more than once in the New Testament. Jesus used it at the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 3. And Hebrews uses it all also in chapters 8 and 9 of that letter. So it's a fairly frequent occurrence in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament we find it only this once. It doesn't mean that this is the only passage that talks about the New Covenant, but it's the only place where we actually read about the New Covenant in those specific terms. Notice that this covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That is, both the ten tribes of the northern kingdom and the two tribes of the southern kingdom are going to be included in this covenant. Nevertheless, when this promise of God, this promise of the new covenant is fulfilled, we find in the New Testament that the promise of this new covenant extends also to the Gentiles. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verses 15 and 28 and 1st John 2 verse 27 use language that are, is similar to the language that we find here in Jeremiah 31 and it is language that is applied to the Gentiles. So this covenant, this new covenant includes both Jews and Gentiles. The third thing that we want to see here is that God continues in verse 32 of Jeremiah 31 to say that this covenant will be will not be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them. So God says I made my covenant with them at Mount Sinai. I in that covenant I became a husband them. They became my wife. And we have here that imagery again of the covenantal relationship of God and his people under the metaphor of the marriage relationship. The marriages are covenant relationships in scriptural teachings. That is the swearing of oaths to one another, the swearing of faithfulness in the relationship. And God has made that same kind of covenant with his people but, he says, you have broken that covenant. And that same figure then is found in Isaiah, as we saw, chapter 54. It's found in Hosea, it, especially the beginning of that prophecy. It's found again in Ezekiel, which we'll see, uh, God willing, next week. It's a very important metaphor for the covenantal relationship and the The unfaithfulness of his people is called then a breaking of that covenantal relationship and adultery and harlotry because the people of God in the Old Testament were the wife of God and that uh, relationship between God and his people carries right over into the New Testament so that the church is called the bride of Christ and he is called her bridegroom. Now notice that when God says this in verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, that he kind of implies that there was a fault with that covenant. That that covenant was insufficient in some ways. And Hebrews 8 actually says this in so many words. Hebrews 8 verse 7 For if that first covenant, and that's the covenant at Sinai, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it quotes Jeremiah 31. So there's a fault in that old covenant. And this new covenant, which God is going to make then, according to Jeremiah 31, is a covenant which will address the faultiness of that old covenant. It will not be made according to the covenant he made with them at Sinai. It will be a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant that takes care of the problem of that old covenant. And we'll, as we look at this passage more in the verses that follow, we'll see how the uh, new covenant uh, did address that fault of the old covenant. That's really found in verses 33 and 34, where we find the uh, promises that God gave in connection with this new covenant. And remember, this is a prom- these are promises he's making to Israel and Judah but promises that then are also given to the Gentiles in the New Testament. There's continuity here uh, in the covenant from Old Testament to New Testament. So in verse 33, God says, uh, verse 32, I'm not going to make a covenant according to the covenant at Sinai, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is how the new covenant will be better than the old covenant. In the old covenant at Sinai, God wrote his law on tables of stone. In this new covenant, God is going to write his covenant, his law, on the tables, the fleshy tables of the heart. He's going to put the law in their minds. And the difference here, I think, is this, that that old covenant, in a certain sense, did no more than set for the people of God an objective standard. But the new covenant, in writing that law on their hearts, conforms them to the standard. That's why it's better. The work of the Spirit comes. And the work of the Spirit actually addresses this problem with the Old Covenant, the external problem of the externality of the Old Covenant, we might say, and makes it uh, a covenant that is internal. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 also makes a comparison between the Old Covenants and the New. And I think his... uh, Teaching here is very important for the understanding of the new covenant. We're going to come back to this passage also in the future. But let's just note verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, that's the Sinaitic, Sinaitic covenant, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glorious in glory. So Paul says that old was the letter, the new is the Spirit. That's the difference. Now, this is not an absolute difference, of course. When God gave his law to his people and when he worked for uh, worked salvation for them uh, under the old covenant, he was re- really redeeming them from their iniquities and he was really sanctifying their hearts and uh, bringing them into conformity to the law. This is phrased in such a way as to suggest that That's not what happened, but of course we know that God's people were saved in the Old Testament and they were sanctified in the Old Testament. God did, in a certain sense, write his law on their hearts as well as on the tables of stone. He did not only circumcise their flesh, but he also circumcised their hearts. But the point we're making here is that the New Covenant, it's the New Covenant to which that Old Covenant uh, pointed, which makes all that work of God in the Old Testament possible. So that's the first promise. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. But there are other promises here in Jeremiah 31 as well. Turning again to uh, verse 33 of that chapter, we find God continuing with these words, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now this was the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. He had said specifically to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your children after you. They will be my people. And God had fulfilled that covenant with Abraham in part at Mount Sinai when he built his tabernacle, his house, among them and came to dwell among them. That tabernacle was the visible sign of God being their God and they being his people. But now God says, in this new covenant, I'm going to fulfill that promise in an even better way. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will dwell among them. And of course we know that that promise was fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ who came according to John chapter 1 and tabernacled among us who is also according to John the temple of God and who makes his New Testament church the temple of God in which God dwells by his spirit. So this is the promise then of the new covenant. It's the same promise that God had made to Abraham that he had repeated to Israel and partly fulfilled to them as well. So that's the second promise. The third promise that we find here is in verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them says the Lord. That's the third promise that we find here. And I think that what the prophet is doing here, what God is doing, is using that word, know, in a very special way. The people of God in the Old Testament did know him. But they knew him through the prophets, the prophets and the priests, actually, The prophets and the priests knew God more intimately than his people did because the priests were able to enter into the very house of God, into his presence, the people could not go there, and the prophets could hear the voice of God directly and could speak to God directly. The people did not have those advantages. They could not communicate with God directly, nor hear His word directly. There was a mediator that was needed, a human mediator, that Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament prophets. They could not know Him, therefore, in the sense that the prophets knew Him. The prophets had to come to them and they had to say to them, Know the Lord. They had to reveal the Lord's word to them. They had to bring them into fellowship with the Lord. And the same was true of the priests. The priests on the people's behalf entered into the tabernacle, into the house of God, and into the presence of God for the people and called upon the name of the Lord in his behalf and brought the word of the Lord to the people on his behalf. They will all know me the Lord says, and this is the, uh, the prophecy really that Joel refers to when he says, your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions and everyone will know me and everyone of my people will prophesy. And it's the same prophecy that uh, Peter refers to in Acts chapter 2 when he quotes Joel chapter 2 and he says, they will all know me they will all be able to prophesy and that word is fulfilled not just to jews also uh, only but also to gentiles they will all know me gentiles also then are brought into the house of god come into his tabernacle into his temple into his dwelling place he makes of two Jew and Gentile, one new man, Ephesians chapter 2. So they will all know me. And there is there in that they will all know me then, that intimacy of fellowship and communion that every true believer in the New Testament has with God. That comes by way of this new covenant. And then, The fourth promise that we find here is, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, a couple of things about that. First of all, that promise is tied to the preceding promise, they will all know me, with the word for. For, I will forgive their iniquity. They will all know me because I will forgive their iniquity. The problem with the old covenant was that it didn't really forgive iniquity. That's what Hebrews 10 says. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. The Old Covenant couldn't do it. And because it couldn't do it, the people could not all know the Lord in the sense that the priests and the prophets knew him. But this New Covenant is going to remove that barrier of sin. In this New Covenant, God is really going to forgive sin. He's really going to accomplish what was displayed in the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament. This new covenant, therefore, is an improvement on the old covenant because it does actually take away sin. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And that new covenant, then, takes away sin, not only for those who hear the words of that new covenant, in the New Testament times, but it takes away sin retroactively for all of God's elect in the Old Testament. And it was because of that new covenant, that fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ, and that those Old Testament signs were not completely useless they pointed the people to that new covenant, to Christ, and to the forgiveness of sins, and they caused the true people of God to hope in that promise of God, the promise of the blood of Christ, which was portrayed for them in the, sacram- in the sacrifices. So what we see about this new covenant, then, in Jeremiah 31, is that it relates to the prior covenants. God uses the same kind of language in this new covenant that He uses with regard to the old used with regard to the old covenant, and in fact he, he makes the same kinds of promises in this new covenant that He had made in the old covenant. I will be their God, they will be my people. They will all know me. I will forgive their iniquity. these are promises that God had made, even I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, was fulfilled when God circumcised the hearts of his people. But this new covenant then, though it's all in terms of the old covenant, and, is, and that makes it very clear that this new covenant is simply carrying on from the old covenant, gives the reality that the old covenant only portrayed in symbols. It points to Christ himself. In Hebrews chapter 8, we read about that again. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. But now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second. Because, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he quotes then from Jeremiah 31 in verses 9, 10, and 11, and even verse 12. But then he says in verse 13, in that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And in chapter 10, verses 14 to 18 as well, For by one offering, He, that is Christ again, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That word offering refers, of course, in the first place to the Old Testament sacrifices, but Christ is the new sacrifice. And he perfects forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. And he quotes again from Jeremiah 31 uh, and ends, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Christ's offering brought an end to the old covenant offerings and it brought an end to them because there was a real remission of sins in Christ's offering and that was for both Jews and Gentiles the people of God in both old and new testaments now if we go back to Jeremiah 31 to look at the rest of that chapter we find this In verses 35 to 37, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Notice this then. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So the Lord says this new covenant is going to be permanent. You broke that old covenant, and that was because the old covenant really could not accomplish what I am going to accomplish in the new covenant. There's that old covenant was not sufficient. And you were faulty in connection with that old covenant. You broke it. You transgressed it. You worshipped other gods. But I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And this new covenant is going to be permanent. It's going to be as permanent as the ordinances of the moon and the sun and the stars there's not going to be the possibility of that covenant coming to an end like the old covenant did this new covenant will not grow obsolete and then in verses 38 to 40 the lord describes this new covenant with his people in terms of the restoration of jerusalem Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Garab. Then it shall turn toward Goeth and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. And this is talking, in the first place anyway, about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. But it's not talking only about that. It's also to be carried forward into the New Testament and understood of the city of God in the New Testament, which is the church. And we have this language then in Revelation 21, which reveals this new city of God coming down from heaven. That's the rebuilt city of God. Fundamentally, the city God is talking about here, therefore, in Jeremiah 31 is not the Old Testament city of Jerusalem, not that city of bricks and mortar, but the spiritual city, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. So that's the point of Jeremiah 31. Two things, really. There is, in this new covenant, A repetition of the promises God made to his people in the Old Covenant. But it's a new covenant and it's a better covenant because it will be an unbreakable covenant. It will be a permanent covenant. It will accomplish what the Old Covenant could not accomplish. It will gather the true people of God and God will be their God and they will be his people. Now, one more passage in Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 36 to 44. This also is a prophecy concerning Jerusalem. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. And God is talking here to Jeremiah, and about the prophecies Jeremiah had been speaking in the Lord's name, rightly, to the people of uh, Judah about the destruction of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord about the city of which you have been saying it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of of Babylon. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, And in great wrath, I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. So he's talking again about the promise of gathering his people from the lands to which they've been scattered, bringing them back to their own land, the land of promise, causing them to dwell there. And again, he makes that central promise of the covenant. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, verse 38. He talks again in terms of what he will do for their hearts. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. This is language that should be related to Jeremiah 31 when he says he'll write their law, his law on their hearts. I will give them one heart that they may fear me forever for the good of the, them and their children after them. And notice how he includes the children here. As this promise then carries over to the New Testament, this promise also that he will be the God of their children carries over into the New Testament. God has said it here in Jeremiah 32. And again, he says of this new covenant, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, verse 40, that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. So God says, I'm going to plant them again in their land. And the way this is fulfilled is first of all, of course, in the return from captivity, but that again is not the end of it. The promise continues after that. That's very clear in the prophet Haggai, by the way, and we're going to be looking at that too. When God says in Haggai about the temple that um, the returned captives built, this, Haggai 2 verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, Is this not in your eyes as nothing? And we know that that old temple, that second temple, was as nothing. There were people, according to Ezra chapter 3, who had seen Solomon's temple and who saw the foundations of the temple that Ezra and the people of Judah began to build, and they wept because that temple was so insignificant in comparison with Solomon's temple and notice what God says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord. And then the Lord says, verse 7, And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. I think Actually, this should be translated, the desirable things of the nations shall come. I will shake all nations, and the desirable things of all nations shall come. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord. That is, this temple which you are building has a corresponding reality in the New Testament. And to that temple, all the desirable things of the nations are going to come. And I'm going to fill that temple with glory. The glory of this latter temple, verse 9, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So we have those three prophecies in Jeremiah the first related to the old covenant and God's basically saying that covenant in Jeremiah 31 that covenant is going to grow obsolete that covenant is going to be abolished I'm going to make a new covenant but that new covenant is made in the same terms with the same promises as the old covenant in fact that new covenant is in Christ And that New Covenant is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. It's not an altogether New Covenant. You can always describe the New Covenant in terms of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was pictorial. God deliberately made it pictorial. He displayed to his people through means of these pictures what the New Covenant was going to be like. And when the New Covenant was made in Christ. It fulfilled that Old Covenant. It fulfilled all those pictures. It brought the reality which those pictures displayed to God's people in the Old Testament. The Old was promised. The New is reality. And so the Old Covenant is broken and abolished and it does not remain forever. But in another way of looking at it, the Old Covenant also continues in the restoration of Israel to the land, and in the realities to which that restoration of Israel pointed, the gathering of the Gentiles into the new heavens and the new earth, and the building of the most glorious temple of all, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, in which Jew and Gentile become one people of God forever. I think though the language is strong in Jeremiah 31 and Uh, strong also in Hebrews chapter 8, what we can say about the relationship between these two covenants is that the covenant and the idea of the covenant remain the same in Old and New Testaments. That the promises of the covenant remain the same in the Old and the New Testament. The promises are still the same promises, and the essence of the covenant is still the same. I will be your God and the God of your children and you will be my people. That's the essence of God's covenant in the Old Testament. It doesn't change in the New Testament. Everything stays the same in that regard. But what changes is the administration of the covenant. We can speak then of essential continuity and administrative discontinuity. That's the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 3, when he talks about the administration of the Spirit and the administration of the letter. The covenant doesn't change. The covenant itself remains the same. But the administration of the covenant is new. The administration is no longer through those signs and ceremonies of the Old Testament. The new covenant is administered by the Spirit of God in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and fulfills all those realities to which the Old Covenant pointed, both for Jews in the Old Testament and Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. May God bless you with his word.